I'm Beth Bennett, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, June 2nd, 2020. Coming up, local author and science educator Melanie Pfeffer talks about her new book and her approach to making biology accessible and interesting to all. During the COVID-19 pandemic, many people are turning to science for help in understanding the epidemic, for predictions as to its end, and also for cures and preventive measures. It's more important than ever right now to have a clear grasp of what we can and cannot expect from science. Modern science is our best way to understand the world, but it does have limits. One that I want to emphasize is the uncertainty of scientific findings. Science proceeds in small steps. One leads to another, and then another step may reject that first. This goes on in an iterative procedure. The inimitable Richard Feynman, Nobel laureate and quantum physicist, was well aware of the beauty and limits of science. In the following excerpt from one of his many talks to the public, Feynman explores some of these ideas. Now I'm going to discuss how we would look for a new law. In general, we look for a new law by the following process. First, we guess it. Then we well, don't laugh. That's the really true. Then we compute the consequences of the guess to see what, if this is right, if this law that we guessed is right, we see what it would imply. And then we compare those computation results to nature. Or we say compared to experiment or experience. Compare it directly with observation to see if it, if it works. If it disagrees with experiment, it's wrong. In that simple statement is the key to science. It doesn't make a difference how beautiful your guess is. It doesn't make a difference how smart you are who made the guess or what his name is. If it disagrees with experiment, it's wrong. That's all there is to it. It's therefore not unscientific to take a guess, although many people who are not in science think it is. For instance, I had a conversation about flying saucers some years ago with Lehman. Because <laughs> I'm scientific, I know all about flying saucers. So I said, I don't think there are flying saucers. So the other, my antagonist said, is it impossible that there are flying saucers? Can you prove that it's impossible? I said, no, I can't prove it's impossible. It's just very unlikely. That, they say, you are very unscientific. If you can't prove it impossible, then why, how can you say it's likely that it's unlikely? Well, that's the way that is scientific. It is scientific only to say what's more likely and less likely and not to be proving all the time possible and impossible. To define what I mean, I finally said to him, listen, I mean that from my knowledge of the world that I see around me, I think that it is much more likely 
that the reports of flying saucers are the result of the known irrational characteristics of terrestrial intelligence rather than the unknown rational efforts of extraterrestrial intelligence. It's just more likely, that's all. And it's a good guess. And we always try to guess the most likely explanation, keeping in the back of the mind the fact that if it doesn't work, then we must discuss the other possibilities. There was, for instance, for a while, a phenomenon called superconductivity. It still is the phenomenon. Uh, which is that metals conduct electricity without resistance at low temperatures. And it was not at first obvious that this was a consequence of the known laws with these particles. But it turns out that it has been thought through carefully enough, and it's seen, in fact, to be a consequence of known laws. There are other phenomena, such as extrasensory perception, which cannot be explained by this known knowledge of physics here. And uh, it is interesting, however, that that phenomenon has not been well established. And uh, <laughs> that uh, we cannot guarantee that it's there. So if it could be demonstrated, of course, that would prove that the physics is incomplete. And therefore, it's extremely interesting to physicists, whether it's right or wrong. And uh, many, many experiments exist which show it doesn't work. The same goes for astrological influences. If it were true that the stars could affect the day that it was good to go to the dentist, then, as in America, we have that kind of astrology, then it would be wrong, the physics theory would be wrong, because there's no mechanism by uh, understandable in principle from these things that would make it go. And that's the reason that there's some skepticism among scientists with regard to those ideas. Now, you see, of course, that with this method, we can disprove any definite theory. You have a definite theory, a real guess, from which you can really compute consequences which could be compared to experiment, and in principle, we can get rid of any theory. You can always prove any definite theory wrong. Notice, however, we never prove it right. Suppose that you invent a good guess, calculate the consequences, and discover that every consequence that you calculate agrees with experiment. The theory is then right? No, it is simply not proved wrong. Because in the future, there could be a wider range of experiments. You could compute a wider range of, co of consequences, and you may discover then that the thing is wrong. That's why laws like Newton's laws for the motion of planets last such a long time. He guessed the law of gravitation, calculated all the kinds of consequences for the solar system and so on, compared them to experiment, and it took several hundred years before the slight error of the motion of Mercury was developed. During all that time, the theory had been failed to be proved wrong and could be taken to be temporarily right, but it can never be proved right because tomorrow's experiment may succeed in proving what you thought was right wrong. So we never are right. We can only be sure we're wrong. <laughs> However, it's uh, rather remarkable that we can last so long. I mean, uh, <laughs> I have some idea which will last so long. I must also point out to you that you cannot prove a vague theory wrong. If the guess that you make is poorly expressed, rather vague, and the method that you use for figuring out the consequences is rather a little vague, you're not sure, I mean, you say, I think everything's because it's all due to Muggles, and Muggles do this and that, more or less, so I can sort of explain how this works. Then you see that that theory is good because it can't be proved wrong. <laughs> if the process of computing the consequences is indefinite, then with a little skill, any experimental result can be made to look like a, an expected consequence. You're probably familiar with that in other fields. For example, A hates his mother. The reason is, of course, because she didn't caress him or love him enough uh, when he was a child. Actually, if you 
investigate, you find out that as a matter of fact, she, she did love him very much and everything was all right. Well then, it's because she was overindulgent when he was <laughs> So by having a vague theory, it's possible to get either result. Note especially that science can never prove something is right, only that an idea is wrong. And the corollary is that you have to express your ideas in clearly testable, measurable ways. To extrapolate to our current situation, this means that early guesses will later prove wrong, but only as new tests come along to disprove them. So take every new study with a grain of salt or two, especially ones that are reported in so-called preprint format. This means the work has not yet been peer-reviewed or scrutinized by colleagues who can critique the original guess and the method of experimentation. Another factor that's really important in science is replication. So if something has only been done once, it too can be questionable until it's been replicated in its entirety. Dr. Melanie Peffer is a local scientist, educator, and author. Her PhD is in molecular biology, but she moved on to researching how people best learn and engage with biology. She recently published a book called Biology is Everywhere, exploring this topic. I spoke with her several weeks ago about her book, her current research, and her enthusiasm about communicating biology. Welcome to the show, Melanie. It was really a pleasure to read your book, which is called Biology Everywhere, because when I was teaching biology for 25 years at CU, I had exactly the same approach. That is how to make biology fun and interesting. And I was stunned as apparently you were too at how many people did not have that experience. And I am sure many of our listeners can relate to the experience that their science education was a total drag. So what got you interested in um, teaching biology and making it fun and interesting? Well, thank you for having me, Beth. And that's a great question. So I, I got about halfway through my, my graduate program. Um, this is when I was working on my PhD. And I, I just kind of realized I had this existential crisis and I realized that you know, I didn't want to be in a lab full time and I didn't want to be in a classroom full time, but I had these passions for biology and for research and for education. And I just wasn't sure how to bring them together in a way that made sense. And so what I ended up doing is uh, volunteering as a um, intern in the education department at the Pittsburgh Zoo and PPG Aquarium. And that was when I really started getting my first formal um, biology teaching experience. And I just really enjoyed it and really loved it. And that kind of, um, that was a very pivotal point in my career. Um, so while I was um, at the Pittsburgh Zoo, I started getting into learning sciences research and educational technology research, which led to a postdoc in the learning sciences and building a research program and now this outreach program with Biology Everywhere in the book about how do people learn, understand, and engage with biology content. So that's really fascinating. Talk a little bit about this new discipline in education, which is 
um, kind of an interdisciplinary approach to teaching biology. Like I love it in your book that you pull in art um, as well as experience, different people's experiences. Yeah, so that was something that that's a it was a factor of my background because um, you know my PhD is in molecular biology, but my postdoctoral training was pure learning sciences, educational psychology, and all the research I've done for the last five years has been learning sciences, educational psychology, really trying to understand how people learn within the discipline. And so it became because of my background, so a very interdisciplinary background, and a lot of my um, professional efforts are geared towards trying to help people. Um, learn how to communicate across disciplinary boundaries and then also was from my experience teaching non-STEM majors so non-STEM majors biology so this is biology for business students and arts students and education students and at the beginning of every semester I would ask students you know what are they excited about for this semester what are they nervous about for this semester and they would always tell me how nervous they were to take my course and they didn't think they could do it um, and so I took a step back and said, okay, how do I make biology fun and accessible? And so that's where the biology of philosophy comes from. And it deals with how does biology relate to my life? And getting back to your question, how does biology relate to my major? And so that's where a lot of the chapters come from with the arts and biology and the business and biology and biology and psychology, because I changed my teaching approach to really be intentional about connecting biology to my students' majors and their interests and how biology relates across disciplines. And I, I so strongly believe that that's how everything should be taught. And I'm interested in the kind of research you did because I never did research in the field of education. I did research on my students. So every semester I would tell them right up front first day, I'm experimenting on you. You're my guinea pigs and I'm trying something new. So every semester I try something new. It didn't always work, but we would always talk about, you know, what that approach was. So how do you do research on science education? So that's a good question. So my, my perspective is, is that I'm taking my intimate disciplinary understanding, my understanding of the enculturation process of becoming a biologist and using that as a lens through what we know, um, combining that with what we know about, um, about human learning and human developing to understand how people learn and understand biology. Um, and so one of my big research projects was using educational technology, a simulation system that I developed as a way of assessing students' beliefs about how science works and where science knowledge comes from. So are there epistemological beliefs about science? And so it's taking all theory and methods from learning sciences and learning analytics and then combining it with what I know about what it means to be a biologist and what it means to do biology research. And so with all those perspectives and techniques together, getting a picture of what learning looks like during biology inquiry. So it's kind of like building a model and you can input different variables and different factors and tweak them and then see what the outcome will be like. Yeah, that's one way of thinking about it. And also just um, thinking about the practicality, that's something that's interesting about the interface that I'm sitting at with, um, with biology education research because I've been in biology classrooms quite a bit so I'm thinking about these practical applications but I've also spent so much time in learning sciences and thinking about learning theories and so a lot of what I do is trying to bridge that that gap between theoretical perspectives on human learning and practical applications to biology classrooms. And so I just want to assure our listeners that if you read the book, there isn't a lot of discussion of these research methodologies. I just wanted to point them out. But in the book, there's a lot of fun chapters for probably the first two thirds of the book about 
different areas in biology and um, you know, probably areas that many of the listeners have been exposed to in coursework and maybe they found them really dry and uninteresting. So maybe you can give us a couple stories of things that you really like. Like I liked it that you used your pregnancy and your experiences with your child to point out um, different aspects of biology. So like I said, if you have a couple favorite stories that you would use in teaching, then that would kind of illustrate to our listeners what they would find in your book. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yes, I feel like being a parent is just a lesson in biology in and of itself. And so that's okay. why there's so many stories about parenting in there, about genetics and about human development and about conception. Um, but there's also other personal stories in there. So the chapter on cell biology focuses a lot on cancer because like many people listening right now, I've lost family members to cancer. And so where does cancer come from and what does that how does that relate to our daily lives? What does that have to do with our cells in the first place? There's also um, some self-deprecating stories in there. Um, so in the, the um, energy chapter, when I talk about cellular respiration and fermentation, so don't, don't turn the station off, hang on. <laughs> so I know that usually turns a lot of people off when I say that, but um, my freshman year of college, I accidentally uh, made hooch in my dorm room because I had old apple juice and it had fermented, some wild yeast or bacteria got in there. And I remember opening the bottle and all this air rushed out. And that was my first hint that, you know, I maybe shouldn't drink that. <laughs> and, <laughs> but it was a great example of, you know, a dumb thing that I did as a teenager. It's a really good example of biology everywhere. The other thing that I tried to focus on, especially in the later chapters on ecology and evolution was applications to our daily lives what are the the biological questions that we grapple with every day so for example there's a section in there on um, the decision to reuse and if um, there's a lot of headlines right now about plastic bag bans and the question is are plastic bags actually greener or not because um, it's easy to be like oh well reusable bags have to be greener but really reusable bags are only green, greener if there's a commitment to actually reusing them Right. And so people who buy new bags every time they go to the store, that actually ends up being worse for the environment because it takes so much, so many more resources to produce those. Right, right. And another thing I really liked about some of the later chapters is your discussion about what science is and how it works, which is something that I try to point out on this show a lot, that there's uncertainty in science. It's a process. It's not just a body of facts, which is what many people were exposed to when they were young, like in high school or maybe introductory courses in college, you know, they get exposed to that body of facts and they think, oh, it's just dry and we have to memorize everything and it's not interesting, but it's the process that's really important. So um, I would like you to say in your words, because I've said it many times before, is talk a little bit about that, about um, the process of science and the uncertainty and how science is always changing, because I think that has a lot of relevance for the experience that we're going through right now with learning about this coronavirus. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm glad you brought that up because I think the coronavirus is a really good illustration of several tenets of how science really works, that we, we don't know anything. And what we know about the coronavirus, for example, is changing very, very rapidly. There's been some interesting statistics about how many papers are coming out right now just about the coronavirus. And, um, 
So when we think about science as a body of facts, and this, this is a common misconception I've seen many, many times teaching and in my interactions with the community, and I've actually heard some people talk about that we shouldn't even teach using textbooks because textbooks send the wrong idea. So one example that I talk about in my book is the molecular biology of the cell is the cell biology textbook. And it's about seven pounds. And it sends this message that we know everything there is to know about cell biology when we really don't. There's so much that we don't know. And when we find out more information, it's causing us to revise these ideas. And I think if we get too focused on learning facts, it, it gives this impression of science that it's just about fact finding when it's not, and also that there are facts, when really the power of science, the thing that's so exciting about science and what makes it so powerful is that what we know at any given time is based on the current evidence, and what we know can be revised in light of new evidence. And I think sometimes that looks like scientists don't know what they're talking about, because it's like, but wait, I thought it was this or that or the other thing, but that that's all the that's the power of science. We get, new we get new evidence, we get new information, we come up with new ideas. And I think we saw this in Colorado because originally it was not recommended to wear cloth masks outside. And a few weeks later, in light of new evidence, now everybody's recommended to wear cloth masks outside. It's not that people were wrong a few weeks ago, it's just that new evidence came to light to say, you know what, this is a really good idea. And so I think it's important to remember that, especially with the evolving pandemic, is that we get more and more information and that's going to change recommendations and it's going to change what we do. Absolutely. And so in a week or two, we could get new information that would say, no, those masks aren't really that important after all. And so, you know, then people think, well, science is kind of flip-floppy or wimpy, but actually it's really powerful because it's taking new evidence all the time. And it's, it's, so I, I'm so happy you're talking about this because I want to disabuse people of that notion that scientists don't know what they're talking about when they say, well, it's really uncertain. Exactly. So do you give talks locally? Yeah, so I, I've been doing a couple of local events. Um, sadly, because of the COVID pandemic, many of my in-person events have been canceled. Right. Uh, but I try to get out and talk to people as much as I can um, it's not just about book promotion, but it's about making that face-to-face -face contact because I've found that um, people will pick up my book or they'll talk to me and they say, you know, I'm, I'm interested in your book, but I just don't think I can understand it. And that's usually when it's good to make a personal connection and say, yes, you can. Yes, you can understand it. And here's why you can. Um, and so I've, I've really been focusing on that with a lot of my outreach efforts to really get that message out there of, yes, you can because I didn't write this book for people who already like biology or already into biology education. I wrote it to reach the people who don't feel like they can. Right. And I think that's a great and really important audience. And sadly, we're just about out of time, but I will put up a link to your website where people can find out more information. And if you have more events coming up when things get back to normal, we will also be happy to announce those on the show. Yeah, that would be wonderful. And people are also welcome to go look at video recordings of past events that I did. There's some signings and public talks up there already. Okay, that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for talking. Good to talk to you today, Melanie. All right, thank you for having me. 
That was Dr. Melanie Peffer discussing her book, Biology is Everywhere, and her interest in communicating biology to the general public. To find out more about these topics and her presentations, you can go to her website, biologyiseverywhere, that's all in word, dot com. I will also put the link on the show website. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced by me, Beth Bennett, and engineered by Maeve Conrad. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music was from Richard Strauss, Thus Spake Zarathustra, and The Eagles. You can visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, more information on the show, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.